Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We're going to have a great hour with Dr. Mark Muska. He's here to take your questions, 877-93-FAITH, 877-933-2484. Ask the professor. I know you've got questions. If you've been home a little bit more study time in God's Word, I know you've got questions. With um, with that, send, send them on over. I'll ask on your behalf, 877-93-FAITH. And I think I will uh, take a very short break, and I'll start gathering the questions, and we'll uh, start asking Dr. Mark Muska uh, what he thinks. We'll be right back. Every day across the growing media platform of Faith Radio, we invite all who tune in to discover Jesus as the anchor of our souls, the firm foundation on which we build our lives. I'm Neil Stavum, manager of Faith Radio, inviting you to be a part of what God is doing through this ministry that now reaches across the country and around the world. Daily Bible teaching and faith-filled conversations remind us to hold on to God's promises and rest in His love. During these trying times, we're not shrinking back, we're stepping up. That's why we're asking for your support. Now more than ever, the world needs hope, and the only hope for the world is Jesus. We're committed to deliver the message of hope in Christ each day, but it takes the investment of committed friends to make this outreach possible. Faith Radio is a listener-supported ministry, and our spring fundraiser is just around the corner. So pray about your part in keeping Faith Radio on the air and then call 877-93-FAITH or you can make a gift today online at myfaithradio.com. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Mark Muska is here to answer your questions, 877-933-2484. Question that was from the previous hour, Mark. Welcome, by the way. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, uh, mm-hmm. this listener was concerned that Christian media seems to be minimizing the needs of poor people that are being crushed by the economic shutdown. Really? Wow. Should we read the passage? Why don't we? Yeah, this is James. This is a big time passage. Everybody likes to discuss it because it's it's um, it's uh, penetrating. So James says, chapter two, verse fourteen. He says, "What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that?" Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So uh, that uh, it challenges. Uh, I like the, the motto I give to James, uh, Bill, is the idea of living faith, active faith. It's not just hot air. It's not just talking. That we have faith in the gospel and we follow Jesus. It will show itself in the way that we live. And he's just given one illustration here of you see someone in need, you have the ability to address that need, do it. 
And uh, I respectfully disagree with this caller. Who knows? I mean, in my sphere of understanding of what's going on in the world, I think the church is mobilizing to meet the needs of people who are disadvantaged and uh, are, are struggling right now. Uh, that um, uh, my own church, uh, uh, David Miles, uh, one of the pastors at my church, and uh, that's amazing, the stuff they've got going. Uh, it's an activist church uh, reaching out and meeting needs at several different levels. And so uh, I, I'm not sure about his comment about Christian media mm-hmm. downplaying this. Uh, uh, like I said, I think I'd respectfully disagree with this. It's a humongous opportunity for the church to step oh, it up. Is. That we have the hope of eternal life. And so this life isn't as big a deal as it is for someone who has no hope mm-hmm. after this life. This is all they've got. And so they're terrified. And this is, I don't want to minimize that. I understand the the feelings, but uh, there's so much more that the gospel offers for us that we can, uh, we can have this great hope of even though uh, things are different. And I'll be honest, it's been an adjustment for me. I bet you it has been for you. We get used to so many things and count God's blessings. And when they're taken away, uh, you feel it. But hopefully the church is uh, stepping up and stepping back. So, All right, let's go to uh, John chapter 20. Okay. In verse 17, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mm -hmm. Um, Why was there a reluctance to have Mary touch him or cling to him? (laughs) People have speculated about this. This is where the printed word bill is limited because you can just read this on the page and you wish you had video reruns of this so you could see what actually happened. One of my favorites is that Mary was was clinging to him here and she grabbed him and wasn't going to let go. And it was like... Yeah, enough, e- enough. E- enough, you know. <laughs> so it could have been something like that. I think it's much more mysterious. Why would he say this? I have not yet ascended to my father. And so why would it be something where she shouldn't be touching him yet? Uh, he's obviously got a physical body because uh, last chapter of Luke, uh, that is absolutely clear when he appears to the apostles and he says, touch me and see that I am not right. a, a ghost. I have flesh and bones as a person. I've got a, I've got a body. So I don't think that's an alternative, but there's a whole lot more to be understood from that verse. And uh, we'll, uh, it's one of my things, again, I, I hope there's reruns in heaven. I hope we can see this stuff and really uh, get a lot of those cracks in the narrative filled in for us. Yeah, I was just trying to figure out what he would have to do to present himself to God. I mean, the work on the cross was finished. Yeah, I think it's more of the idea that uh, present himself as victorious now because he is the risen Lord. He has overcome and uh, death and defeated Satan. So it's almost like the presentation of the in the Olympics, you know, they win the thing and then they get the people up on the little uh, blocks and they play the anthem of the one that got the gold medal. It's the presentation of the victor. And uh, I suspect that's what uh, Jesus is getting at there. Yeah. So you've had a lot of discussion about this one in the past, because when he says, don't don't hold on to me. It sounds like, well, she's already she's already made her move. Right. <laughs> it's almost like she's thinking, you know, you got away from me one time before, but you're not getting away again. You know, I, I mean, gotcha. just the overwhelming excitement she must have had. It must have been unbearable. But I cannot, I cannot identify with it. It had to have been absolutely mind blowing for her. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, 
I'm agreeing completely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, it's very interesting. Okay. Um, every time, Mark, I go into Hebrews, I always end up with a lot of questions. Yeah. It's is a, that a it's hard a, book? It's a challenging book. It is. No question about it. It's not exactly uh, the ABCs of the Christian faith. In fact, the author says that himself in chapter 6. Well, we like to argue about Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, but I like what he says before that in verses 1 through 3, where he says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So it's like he's taking them into graduate school now here with a lot of the things he talks about. And it is not easy to understand. We still scratch our head on some of the things that the writer's getting at. Mm-hmm. So in chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, it mm-hmm. talks about having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. What you know what the writer of Hebrews means by that? An evil conscience, does that mean just a sin condition? Chapter 10, did you say? Chapter 10, yeah, verses 21 and 22. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's this purification of our entire being, minds, bodies, everything, as we come with confidence before the throne of God. And so Mm -hmm. is there something else you're scratching about? Well, I think we talked about it before we um, went on the show, which was the idea that there's a default position a lot of people have that say, "Ah, you know, I'm just a sinner. I'm just Mm -hmm. a broken sinner. And and all of a sudden we need to maybe rethink our identity. Yeah. And there's there's a middle ground there, Bill, that we have to strive for, I think, because the two extremes, I I think uh, we aren't doing justice to what the Bible teaches us. On the one hand, you have some people that go to the extreme of saying, well, now in Christ, I'm perfect and I never sin anymore. You know, temptation just kind of bounces off like Mm -hmm. bullets off a Superman or something, you know, (laughs) and I'm just going to live this uh, sinless life. I'd like to meet that person. Well, I'd like to meet their roommate or their (laughs) little brother or somebody like that who could fill us in on the truth about that. Uh It's overemphasizing this justification and sanctification that has taken place for the person who's put their faith in the gospel. But then the other end of the extreme is maybe more prevalent, where people identify themselves as Christians now, as people who put their trust and faith in the gospel. They still identify themselves. You ask them, who are you? Well, I'm just a sinner. Right. And I I don't like the, the uh, uh, present tense of that. Uh, you were in bondage to sin, but now you have been identified with Christ. This whole new life has now taken place. And I love the way Paul develops that in Romans 6, where he uses the illustration of baptism, where he says, we have been baptized, baptized with Christ into death. And now we have been raised with Christ in newness of life. So because we have been joined to Christ, it's very much like the legal thing that goes on between a man and woman in marriage, that they are legally joined together. God sees both us and Christ together as one. And because of that, we now are new creations, new creatures, and we have the ability to resist temptation and to walk with God Uh, perfectly, 
Do we? Well, not not really, because we still have the lure of much of this from the old life that uh, that we succumb to from time to time. And so there's this tremendous battle that takes place within us to continue to claim our position in Christ and the strength that we have in that to resist temptation and the lure of the flesh, the world telling us, you know, come on over here. (laughs) And then Satan and his minions working on us too. So there's a lot of conflict that happens that way. I tease my students sometime. I probably shouldn't do this. I'll have to answer to God someday. But I have students come in and talk to me about, oh, professor, I have this terrible wrestling with sin. I'm just always being terrible. Tempted and I give in so much, I just can't understand it. What's wrong? I say, that sounds awesome to me. <laughs> and they give me this funny look because I say to them, that tells me the work of God is at work within you. Because mm-hmm. if it wasn't, if you didn't belong to Christ, you'd just go sin and you wouldn't care. Yeah. But the very fact that this conscience is there and this desire to please God is indication of the work of God taking place within you. And so keep on with the fight. Don't ever give up. Keep on with that battle because he's given you the power to resist that temptation. Yeah, you're being extra encouraging today. I love that. Well, it's just, especially in the times we're well, in, I it agree. seems like everybody's sinking psychologically. I you know, know, I and, know. Uh, my wife and I are looking at each other like, we got to get out of this house, <laughs> you know? And so yeah. it's, 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 uh, it's, it's taking an emotional, psychological I toll. Get it. I get it. Let me take a little break. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. And if you have a question, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. If you're not a texter and you know how to email, you prefer to do that, bill at myfaithradio.com. Bill at myfaithradio.com. We'll be right back. Dr. Mark Musco, let, let me know what your questions are. 877-93-FAITH. 877-93-FAITH. Again, 877-933-2484. Here's a question. Uh, please ask Dr. Mark Musco, which should we give more weight to in Old Testament readings and why? The Masoretic text or the Septuagint? Yeah, that's a really good question. A lot of people may not even understand what that question is. Uh, the Masoretic text, this is the Hebrew text of the Old Testament that the, 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 the language of the Jews and of the Old Testament was for the most part Hebrew. Uh, that's uh, and then uh, Jesus uh, spoke a derivative of that uh, Aramaic in the first century, but they're both related languages. They have a lot of similarities to one another. The Septuagint is a translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, Old Testament into uh, the language of Greek. Uh, this was done uh, uh, years before, uh, not too many years before Jesus came to earth, but uh, in there uh, before Christ was born. And this was done to uh, give a wider audience for the scriptures of the Old Testament, that uh, Greek was spoken since Alexander the Great especially had conquered so much of that region of the world, Greek was spoken all over the place. And so this was a way to give many more people and nations access to the scriptures to put it in Greek. 
And so the Septuagint was uh, was translated from the Hebrew text. So the weight of the Old Testament, uh, my answer would be nuanced here to say that there is uh, the Old Testament was originally written in Greek. And so those who want to be scholars in the Old Testament, they have to learn the Hebrew language to get past the English translation. Mm-hmm. of it. So that's the primary goal. But it's not at the expense of the Septuagint that the Septuagint, with that translation, and especially being so old, Bill, that that helps us understand some of the puzzling passages in the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, where there's expressions used, or maybe a word that's hardly used at all in the Old Testament, but the Greek translators may give a good hint about what that means, the way they translated it 2,000 years ago. And so it's it's not an either-or. Both of them have, uh, they have value, and there are many scholars today that devote themselves uh, not just to the uh, Old Testament Hebrew text, but the Septuagint as well. We were just talking during break. One of the professors here at Northwestern, Dr. Ed Glennie, has done a lot of work in the Septuagint and uh, working on commentaries in the Old Testament using both the Hebrew text and the Septuagint text Mm. of the Old Testament. So uh, in my opinion, it's a both and, it's not an either or. Interesting. Thank you for that. Um, When I was... uh reading the passage where Jesus was walking on the water mm-hmm. and they were saying that, that, they, that they think they've seen a ghost. And then yes. I was thinking of the other places in scripture where they make references to ghosts. Um, what were, what was the understanding of what ghosts were? I mean, I think a Casper and that's about it. Yeah. Well, uh, the, um, the idea of ghosts is really quite fascinating and not very many Christians really understand the basis for this and the basis of, of for so much superstition, even back in Jesus days, you know, thinking that there's ghosts around, it's based actually on uh, of some uh, teaching from the scriptures that's really pretty sound. And the technical word we use for this, Bill, is the idea of, well, first of all, we talk about personal eschatology. Doesn't that sound impressive? It does. Uh, personal eschatology is the study of the end times or the last days when Jesus returns. Personal eschatology is where we study what our futures are so that you and I, we live our lives here in uh, the body. But what happens to us when we die physically? And then what happens all the way until Jesus finally appears and the end comes, that's all under the umbrella of personal eschatology, okay? And so uh, within that, we can talk about the idea that uh, between our physical death and the resurrection that's going to take place when Jesus returns, this, we use a theological term for that. We call it the intermediate state of existence for humans. Mm-hmm. And technically speaking, what it is, is we are disembodied humans at that point because our bodies have been cremated or they've been buried and they can decompose, but we live on. And that's uh, absolutely clear in the scriptures. Uh, Jesus made that abundantly clear that we live on. And we call this sometimes our soul or our spirit, the immaterial part of us, the non-physical part of us lives on. And Paul is quite clear that that non-physical part of us goes to be with Christ immediately. Uh, In Philippians 1, he makes that clear. To die is gain, to go Mm -hmm. and to be with Christ. That's what he longed to do. So we are disembodied uh, spirits or souls. Well, guess where all the folklore came about ghosts? 
Mm. that they're disembodied really? humans. And this is where you get into all the kind of goofy stuff about how they they haunt, uh, they were killed or died wrongly, and so they come back to torment the people that were responsible for this. So they go down hallways in the middle of the night, and they're dragging chains with them, and they've got creepy voices like, ooh, 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 and the hallways and all this kind of stuff. And, 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 yeah, the temperature goes down, all this stuff. The, the, the folklore that comes out of this is almost without end. But it really is based on the reality of what the Bible teaches us, that we are these disembodied humans between our physical death and the, resurrec- and the resurrection. Isn't that something? I mean, It's really interesting. So many people have no idea of the foundation for all of this mischief out there and all this foolishness about ghosts that's out there. Mm-hmm. I don't think any disembodied human would want to be, you know, rattling chains around here. They'd want to be standing right with Jesus in heaven right, right. and to be with him and, and, to joy, and to enjoy that like Paul talked about. Mm-hmm. All right, let's jump to Luke chapter 24. Okay. And in verse 9 it says, When they came back from the tomb, they had told all these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, mm-hmm. Mary the mother of James, and the others. Now, this is a pretty significant event to be at the tomb, at the resurrection. Yes. Why did they just go, and the others? And who? And tell me about Joanna again. She was the wife of... Oh, I can't remember. Cruz or something? I get the details yeah, yeah, yeah. mixed up here. Yeah. So, but um, the others, evidently, there were others that came and were able to uh, to witness this. And so, uh, they are, or at least they're... Um, let me let me read the passage. Verse 9, it says, uh, They remembered Jesus' words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven, to the eleven apostles. Judas has, has died. And to all the rest. They were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. And so... It was a group. It wasn't just the 11 that they reported to, but uh, why would they leave out the names there? I'm not sure. Yeah, it's just curious. I mean, I can't think of a more significant event than the empty tomb. And usually the Bible takes great care to name all these people, I know. That's why I'm saying that, yeah. uh, uh, Maybe it's that they didn't want to get sidetracked by that to keep the emphasis on the the main point here is that Jesus is resurrected. He's alive again. Yeah. I want to say Joanna was the wife of some significant person, too. Kind of a hitter. Like, you know, Rebecca? Luke 8, 2, or 8, in the early part of Luke 8, I believe we find that answer. Okay. Well, let's, oh. get, let's get to that when we come back. Sure. From, well, no, we've got time. Yeah, she's she's one of the women that are were healed of demons and unclean spirits. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So she's listed in there along, Mary Magdalene is like the big name that everybody remembers, but yeah. Joanna's also in that passage. I can read it here. And, and it says many others too. And she was, she had demon possession as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple of people full of demon possession that have been healed that were at the, the empty tomb. Good call, Rebecca. It says in verse eight, uh, chapter eight, verse one. So after, soon afterwards, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, the apostles, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, there it is, the wife of Chusa. Uh, Herod's steward, so he had a good job. And then Susanna, many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Yeah, Hmm. real good. All right, Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. If you have a question, let me know what it is. Send the text to 877-933-2484. 
877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. You can, of course, be anonymous if you like. We'll be right back. Some good questions are coming in. Here's a question mark in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. What party is included with the Gentiles that will be fellow heirs? Yeah. Etc. That the, the, the quick answer to that is he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles being reunited. You gotta understand the Gentiles were everybody but Jews. So it was like he's saying the Jews and the non-Jews are all going to be united. you got to start earlier in the chapter to get the idea of this, because he says, uh, verse 3, he says, By revelation there was made known to me the mystery of Christ, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed in his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. And in in chapter 2, he gets into this whole thing about how now the Gentiles have been brought into the body of Christ, that they were far off and they were dead in their trespasses and sins. Uh, Can I read some of this at the beginning of the chapter? It's just wonderful. He's talking to the Ephesians here. He says, you were dead, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. So Paul, us Jews, we were doing the same thing. But now, and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And it's one of the greatest but gods in the whole Bible. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For great, great, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Whoa. Get up and march. That's that's, just awesome. That is awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're all sort of wanting to get up and march, but then there'd be a lot of silence in the studio. (laughs) Who cares? There's nobody around, so, you know. That's true. That's true. All right. We'll have fun. If here's another question, Mark, mm-hmm. if Jesus had siblings, why did he ask John from the cross to take care of his mother? Yeah. Good question. Good question. No kidding. Uh, again, it's never exper- uh, explained uh, for us. Um, we can speculate on what uh, what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get a little bit of a hint earlier in John's gospel where... Uh, John makes it clear that his brothers were not believing in him. I believe that's in John 7. Let's see here. Yeah, uh, John 7, in verse 1, listen to it. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booze, were near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. And, and then verse 5, John comments, 
for not even his brothers were believing in him. And wow. so it may be <laughs> at that point that they were not yet believing in him. And so Jesus commends Mary into the hands of John the Apostle here. And there's really strong church history that, in fact, he did uh, take care of her until the end of her life. That that's, uh, There's some good uh, church tradition that supports that. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, how powerful that Mary witnessed what she witnessed. At the crucifixion. She's the quite flag. a gal. You it's, know, it's stunning. It's, it, Mary is just kind of a hot item these days because there's uh, th- there's a lot of Protestant Catholic uh, bomb throwing back and forth at each other about this where uh, Mary gets a, a little bit too much attention at times. And I don't know if that's really honoring to the Lord. But then sometimes Protestants don't give her enough of a place in the gospel story and mm. the place that she filled. Uh, she's quite a woman. One of the greatest stories of faith in the Bible. It is. Did you not say? Well, right from the announcement yeah. that Gabriel made, she believed it. And uh, she considered herself most blessed of women because God has shown his favor to her like this. So uh, she is quite a, a model of uh, faith and devotion. And so. Uh, I think we could do more in Protestant circles to uh, recognize that and uh, and see her as an outstanding character in the gospel story. All right, here's one. Uh, what would be the best way to... Well, it's a two-part question. Okay. Let me start from the beginning. Does God pronounce homosexuality as a sin? Do we have clear scripture to answer that? If so, what? Mm-hmm. And then the part two is, what would be the best way to show God's truths to the LGBT population regarding their sexuality? Yeah. Can we clearly define sexual sin? That is a great question. Yeah. And it's loaded. Uh, I'm... Uh, I'm uh, a little bit disappointed and saddened that the church has struggled to come together to address these questions. Uh, Anybody who's been alive more than about 30 or 40 years knows that this thing has just escalated in our society around the world and in the church Mm -hmm. uh, to something that really has been become an important question that just cannot uh, be uh, ignored. Uh, I I think back in the previous century we lived in, a lot of times uh, Christians could just... uh, turn the other way to all these issues because it just wasn't front and center like it is. Uh, uh, I think it's fair to say, isn't it, Bill, in the last 10 or 12 years, this thing has just uh, completely changed. It's advanced. So uh, there are scriptural texts that, uh, I'll, I'll put it this way, Bill, because I want to be respectful to the the people out there trying to inter- interpret these passages. There are passages that appear to be quite clear about the idea that homosexuality, to uh, practice that uh, uh, sex with uh, people of your same sex, is wrong, Mm -hmm. and it is sin. And uh, uh, there's a a couple different passages that come to mind with this. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is discussing uh, the uh, progression of sin that goes through the human race, how we uh, turn away from God and it incites God's wrath, as a matter of fact, because he, humans as a whole, we turn away from him and we uh, we worship other gods and we do all kinds of things that are hateful to God. And uh, homosexuality is one of the things that's listed there, but it's not the only thing. There's plenty of other things that are 
uh, that incite the anger of God, uh, that we rebel against him and we practice these things that are hateful to him. And so specifically in uh, Romans 1 verse 24, it talks about how God is just allowing this sin to multiply. He's not stopping it. He says in verse 24, uh, therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is idolatry that he's talking about there. And then verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire for one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the penalty of their error. So this is a passage among others that's used. Uh, there's another one uh, in First Corinthians 6 that uh, gives a laundry list of, of sins that are to be resisted, temptations that are to be resisted by those in the church. And uh, so that passage can be brought in as well. Now, I have to be fair to this whole discussion, Bill, that the interpretation of these passages is uh, under very vigorous discussion today Mm -hmm. among those in the church that say that they believe what the Bible teaches. And that's the most important discussion, in my opinion, to start with. We have to start with those who agree with with, with us that the Bible's God's word, and if we can figure out what it means, we're bound to follow it if we can if we can interpret it. And so, uh, it's in fairness to bo- the sides on this thing. I think both sides are trying to be fair with the scripture, but they're reading these things and coming to different conclusions about it. And so, I think we have to engage this discussion and uh, do the best we can to interpret these passages fairly to what God intended them to mean and not what we hope that they would mean or we think that they would mean. Uh, we don't want to treat the scriptures like some uh, circus bear and, and you know have a performing bear up on its hind legs dancing for us. We want to let the scriptures speak for themselves and try to understand them the best we can. So then getting to the second question here, uh, how do we approach those who are in the so-called gay community? Mm-hmm. The best way to show God's truth. Uh, this, uh, this is a, an issue of uh, truth and love and priority that we have to somehow be able to bring those three factors together. We don't ever want to compromise on the truth of Scripture, but we also have to recognize that we are to love the people that we associate with. And sometimes that love, is it tempers that truth so that we don't use the truth as a weapon against people and damage people and hurt them with the truth. So, And then thirdly, there's an issue of priority. I don't care if it's homosexuality or murder or theft or any other kind of sin. The first priority is to do business with the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness of sin that he provides through his death on the cross. And once that decision has been made to come to Jesus as you are, not dictating the terms to Jesus, he dictates the terms to you, that you become a follower of Jesus, you present your life to him and say, okay, forgiveness of sin, peace with God, eternal life. Yes, that's, I trust you for that, Jesus. And then 
we get into these issues. So if someone struggles with alcohol, I know you've had this ministry going on for years with addictive kinds of things. You get into those kinds of things then with the person once they've taken that first step, because Mm -hmm. otherwise they're not going to understand. They still haven't been uh, justified and reconciled to God. So of course it's going to sound harsh and difficult. So there's an issue of priority in there as well, that what do you start with? So with those uh, that... um, Uh, I know that are uh, in the gay lifestyle or uh, 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 now the newest one in this, too, is with the transgender part of this LGBTQ um, uh, movement. I'm going to start with the gospel and talking to them about Jesus and and being forgiven and at peace with God, Mm -hmm. Uh, not uh, hammering on them because of their lifestyle. Appreciate I know that. that that's a long thing, but you just can't you can't wade in there with something that is so um, it's so powerful today. It's so explosive that mm-hmm. you've got to be very careful to explain yourself because people misunderstand so easily. Yeah, there's a lot of passion involved with this thing. Mm-hmm. All right, here's a question: My nine-year-old grandson just asked me the other day, when we die. Will we be in heaven the same age? What's your answer to this question? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a great little question, isn't it? Yep. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I'm going to qualify things here again, because that remember that personal eschatology I talked to you about? Uh In heaven, we are there temporarily, and that's where we won't have a body at all. So I don't know if you're going to look like anything uh, there. But I'm assuming this nine-year-old's thinking when the resurrection takes place and we dwell on the new heavens and new earth with Jesus and with God forever, we have resurrected bodies that are that are undefiled. Uh, Paul uses that kind of language in 1 Corinthians 15, that we are incorruptible physically, mm-hmm. our bodies now. And so no more aging, no more glasses, no more baldness. Isn't that the greatest? We're going to have hair, Bill. I mean, Can't that's wait. just awesome. So I'm getting the best... But seriously, though, no more coronavirus. Yeah. No more cancer. Yeah, that's great. No more amputation. Everything. It's going to be perfect, incorruptible bodies. But what age is that going to be? Your guess is as good as mine. I love the way C.S. Lewis attacks this in his third uh, space trilogy book, That Hideous Strength. He talks about Ransom as his hero who has a renewed, resurrected body, and he's got a full beard, but he seems to be just a young man. (laughs) And then I still remember one of the lines that Lewis uses where he says, and looking at him, you realize you cannot assign an age to him at all, Mm. that there's... There's traits of youth, but then there's traits that, you know, a kid that's 15 years old doesn't have a full beard like that. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was kind of fun the way Lewis grappled with that issue, too. You know, just would, what would our resurrected bodies yeah. look like? So we don't have our resurrected bodies yet, but we go to heaven. Are we able to see the body of Jesus? Uh, presumably. Okay. You know, he's there at yeah. the right hand of the Father. Right. And that's the first person I want to see. Well, me too. <laughs> yeah. I, can't I love one per- one pastor said it where he said, heaven's not going to be any good if Jesus isn't there. Yeah, amen. Man, that's that's What's why we want to be there. So. There's no point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I'll take a little break. Dr. Mark Muska is here to take your questions. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. Or you can also email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. Be right back.
We're back with Dr. Mark Muska. Mark, you just got back from Israel not too long ago. Yeah, about all a this was ago. All this was happening when you were over there. Oh, it was crazy, Bill, because we, we were traveled from March 5th to March 16th, and that's <laughs> right <laughs> when this whole thing blew yeah. open. Well, that the week before we left, we were d- deeply concerned and checking with the U.S. Uh, consulate and all the doctors and everything about what this virus is doing and everything and whether we should cancel the trip or not. And as a matter of fact, uh, the church that I attend did t- cancel their trip. They were supposed to leave two days after we did, and they decided to pull the plug. Well, it looked good enough yet, so we took off. But then, holy moly, you know, we got back on the 16th, and everything shut down. And it was it was really uh, amazing to uh, to see that whole transition. So okay. it seems like so long ago. That's only about six weeks ago. Yeah. But. Were you over there thinking we may not get back? Oh, it was what? possible. Okay. Yeah. In fact, the, like the, they the, quarantine you over there. The doors were shutting. You know, the, well, what they were doing at that time with international flights is if people were coming in certain areas, uh, while we were there, uh, Israel would not accept flights from Europe, and the United States wouldn't either. Oh wow! And so, thankfully, we flew from Tel Aviv back to Newark. We didn't have a connection in Europe. We wouldn't have gotten back if we would have done that. So uh, there were, you know, details like that. But every day it was evolving. So we had to check. And our guide was just a superstar as far as the way that he checked into things and got things done and maneuvered it so that we could get home. So and as uh, as I'm aware of, we had about um, uh, uh, 40 people in our group. And as I'm aware of, I don't think anybody has been sick. Anyone has had any kind of problems uh, with that. So uh, we, uh, it was so much fun though, Bill, we saw God answer prayer daily about keeping doors open so that we could continue with our study tour. And yeah. it was amazing how the doors opened. And then the next day, the door would close. You Give know? me a story. Give me oh, a story. It was fun. Well, one of them was, um, it's hard to describe this if you don't know the land of Israel real well. Uh, there is a, a, a Jerusalem is in the southern part of the nation, and then not too far from Jerusalem to the south is Bethlehem, and then the the roadway to get to the Valley of Elah, where uh, everybody knows the Valley of Elah is where David and Goliath faced off. So everybody wants to see that. But the road to get there w- went by Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem is a Palestinian territory, so we could not go in to Bethlehem. We didn't see Jericho either because that's a Palestinian territory. If you go in there, Israel will quarantine you for 14 days trying to get out. Mm-hmm. So we had to cancel that part of our trip. But our bus went by Bethlehem, and they had checkpoints between the the Israeli checkpoints and the Palestinian checkpoints. Well, we got through the Israeli checkpoint, but then we get on the other side to the Palestinian one, and they wouldn't let us through. And so they said, you got to go back to the first checkpoint. So we go back there, and our guide gets into this big uh, conversation with all the military and the guards there, the border guards. And so we just went to prayer in the bus and said, God, just open a door for us to be able to go. And he comes back about five minutes later. He says, okay, they're going to let us through that second checkpoint. So we went back through the Palestinian one and we went to the Valley Elah and had a terrific time overlooking this valley where this battle took place between the Philistines and uh, the Hebrews. And so it was uh, things like that virtually every day that was happening. It was such a great faith builder for our crew because it's not theoretical. We're seeing God answer in prayer day by day to open doors for us to be able to continue with that trip. It was really fun. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus was on earth, he said that nobody knows the time of the return, not even himself, only the Father in heaven. Is that fair? 
That's Matthew 24. Mm-hmm. So explain that to me. Oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> or, or not. You can skip that one if you want. That's, yeah. a, that's actually a Bill question. I'm going to get over there. I like it, though. I like the questions you ask. You read the Bible, and you want to understand it. And I'm uh, bravo, you know. I, may your tribe increase. Uh, well, I mean, I, I trust and believe in God's Word. Mm-hmm. I, it's the infallible, authoritative Word, so I don't right. have any problems with that. But some things I just go, hmm, I don't know if I really get that. Not that I have to get it. But. Yeah. Let me read it. Matthew 24. Uh, Jesus is talking about what's going to take place before he returns, the conditions on the earth. And then he talks about his return, and then he starts teaching Mm -hmm. from that. And verse 36 of Matthew 24, he says, But of that day of his return, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father of Lone. Uh, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. They were eating and drinking, and then all of a sudden, kaboom, Mm -hmm. here comes the rainstorm and the floodwaters. And so... Uh, verse 42, he repeats it. Uh, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Verse 44, for this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Uh, chapter uh, 25, verse 13, be on the alert, for you do not know the day or the hour. You getting the message? Yeah. About four whacks over the head there. <laughs> right. He's making his point. Nobody knows. Now, the question is, how can Jesus not know? I thought he was God. I thought God was omniscient. He knew everything. So how can he not know? Thank you. Uh, This is one of the difficulties of the mystery of Christ. And I think it's specifically, how can he be fully God and fully human and one person at the same time? And how do those two natures interact with one another? You're going to scratch your head about that until the cows come home. There's so many issues that come out of that. I just talked to my wife about one of them today, too, where we talk about Jesus at the cross. When he dies, he's separated from God. He's separated from Father. Wait a minute. How can God the Father and God the Son be separated from one another? Yeah. And so uh, we, I think there might be a theology class in heaven someday. I don't know if we'll care at that point. Yeah, probably not. But it still, it makes us... What it does for me, Bill, it makes me realize there is such a vast domain of knowing that I don't know, <laughs> that I've got I've got a little bit of a handle on some of this stuff, but there is so much more about the truth and reality of God and, the, and Christ and the gospel that we're going to be blown away. I think yeah. we're going to spend all eternity learning all oh, of this so about cool. who God is and, and who Jesus is, and it's going to be glorious. Yeah. I mean, a timeless God, a God who lives outside of time, mm-hmm. comes to earth as a baby and is now asleep for the first time? Yeah. God sleeping? <laughs> I mean, you can just name all your issues there. Oh, I got a lot of them. Well, I mean, he's, 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 he's the eternal son uh, in the manger. Does he look up at Mary and say, yo, mama? <laughs> You know, I don't think so, but uh, I no, don't know for I sure. Th- I don't think so. Either. Would have shocked her uh, uh, severely to do something like that. Yeah. But was he aware of who he was even in the manger? Yeah. I mean, I remember watching The Passion of the Christ, that movie, mm-hmm. and seeing a, a young Jesus, must have been eight or nine, and he fell and and, and he um, scratched his knee, you know, and Mary races over and kind of does that mother comforting thing. Oh, and, man. And he's a little bit, you know, teary-eyed because it hurts and... Yeah. He's a little boy, and, you know, it's it's just so sweet. Yeah, well, that's the passion of the Christ, right? Right. Because you're going to get me all teary-eyed because that's one I'm of the— I'm getting teary-eyed. It's one of the most powerful I know. scenes in that movie where— 
the reason she's thinking that is, is she's there on the Via Dolorosa and yeah. Jesus is suffering and he falls and she's holding back initially. I love the way Mel Gibson portrayed that. She holds back. She's fearful. She's uncertain of herself. Mm. And then she remembers running to him when he hurt himself yeah. as a child. So then as an adult, she runs to Jesus and tries to comfort him. That is really, really powerful. Yeah, you're right. That is, I'm tearing mm. up right now. I don't know if that happened that way. But I don't either. Boy, it, it had to be something like that. Okay, we got two minutes, so not not a lot of time left. Okay. But is um, were gender roles nicely established in the garden and that when the curse of sin came in, they became uh, strained um, and and problematic as a result of that. Yeah, that's a really good question. That's a I wish, question. I too. wish we had a couple more minutes than yeah. a couple more minutes for that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, this again is a very potent, powerful issue in our world today when we talk about the role of men and women in the home and the role of men and women in the church. And uh, th- by no means is the Bible believing church on the same page on this thing. There's significant discussion that takes place. But uh, I think this question is coming out because uh, the uh, at least some of the really bad things that take place between husband and wife, man and woman, are the result of the fall. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve have sinned, uh, God is, speaks to the woman. And in uh, verse 15, uh, he's well in verse 16 it says to the woman god said i will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth in pain you will bring forth children yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you mm-hmm. so it sounds like conflict is does, being put it? in there yeah. between men and women yeah. and most women read that first part and say amen to the pain in childbirth too <laughs> that yeah. that's a terrible result of yeah. sin like oh that. i wish we so, had more time thank you mark for mm-hmm. Uh, answering all these questions. Dr. Mark Muska has been my guest. Uh, Thanks for listening, and thank you for supporting Faith Radio. It means all the world to us. Have a great night, everyone, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.